Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The John Frickin' Meerpod is stoked to partner with Garage Grown Gear for Season 6 of the podcast. Garage Grown Gear, or GGG for short, is your online store for all things ultralight backpacking. Dedicated to supporting the growth of small and cottage brands, they've got everything you need all in one place. From ultralight accessories to dehydrated meals to your big three, Garage Grown Gear has everything you need to lighten your load. Based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, GGG is known for its commitment to providing quality ultralight gear, stellar customer service, and free shipping in returns over $40. Do yourself a favor and get your gear at GGG. Well, I'm going to finish. We just need to. Women haven't done this yet. Katie Rhodes. Yeah, I'm super proud of it. You know, like I, I'm definitely not one of those people where it's like, oh, it's no big deal. Like anyone can do it. It's like, no, that was, that was hard. It hasn't been repeated um, by another woman since Katie and I did it. You know, we were the first women to do it. It was historic. It's a, it's amazing. Like I, I look up, I look back on it today because I'm writing about it and I'm like, wow. There's my bucket list. Now what? You know, <laughs> um, I worked for that for so long, and um, it, yeah, it's amazing, and it's um, it will forever be the biggest week of my life. So spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. <laughs> I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio. Hey, is this thing on? Hello. Hit it again. I think it's on now. Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, where each week, Doc will drag some colorful characters out of the woods to talk trail and type 2 fun. If you're aspiring hiker trash, or if you're just looking to understand the hiker trash in your life, look no further. So lace up those boots, gnaw on some jerky, and settle into your 20-mile pace as we fire up the podcast from somewhere deep in the backcountry. It's time to embrace the suck.
Welcome back to another week on the trail, Dirtbags, Hiker Trash, and of course, Good Smelling Day Hikers. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio. Hey, if you like what we're doing here, take just a minute, help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you don't like it, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, let's get to this week's guest, a thru-hiker and mountain lover who has experience as a wilderness therapy instructor and college professor, and who is also currently a writer and a holder of a couple, more than a couple, a multitude of FKTs, Bethany Gerritsen. Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, Bethany. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, in all your time out on the trails, have you picked up a trail name? Not really. Uh, I really haven't. I Or let me rephrase that. Um, possibly. It, when I was a wilderness therapy instructor, we had handles, like a radio handle. And mine was Roadrunner because I was just really fast. <laughs> and then I also got dubbed Pink Lightning. So I would say those are my two. Pink Lightning? Yep. Yeah, because okay. I'm fast. <laughs> That's right. Pink Lightning. And, and I like pink. Pink is my favorite say, color. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to ask if you had a, an affinity for pink. Now, what is... I a- do, I do. What is a wilderness therapy instructor? So there's a field of therapeutic recreation, and that started to gain traction in the U.S. in the 1970s, 1980s, and it's gaining momentum today. Um, It can be anything from programs for veterans uh, coming back from war um, to elderly people. I worked specifically with teenagers and they were either struggling with addiction, depression, anxiety. They needed some sort of intervention. Uh, I worked with some kids who had, you know, overdosed, actually coded, um, been brought back to life. So they were, they were pretty near, you know, that, that line of living and dying and, so they would be taken to um, programs in the woods and they're all around. There is um, some negative press around these programs too today. Um, they saw an uptick during the pandemic. And um, so there's stories out there, um, people reporting on their experiences. The program I worked for was in the Adirondacks called Adirondack Leadership Expedition. And it was run really well. And I just loved the four years that I worked for that program and I worked with boys and girls, um, teenagers in an outdoor setting, I would come in for a week, um, be with them. And then I'd have a week off and they would be in the program for about two to three months. Got it. Got it. Now I just like to point out that it's called wilderness therapy instruction. It's not called office space therapy instruction or high rise therapy instruction or, or office cubicle therapy instruction. I mean, what is it about the outdoors that is so therapeutic? Because I, I totally agree. And I've talked to a number of people who have been traumatized, uh, working on issues, and they're out in wilderness trying to fix those situations. So, I mean, what is it about, about the wilderness that that is therapeutic? Uh, we're meant to be there, I, I think is the bottom line. Our brains, our bodies evolved in an outdoor setting. So we go at the pace of nature. I think 
a lot of individuals are struggling today with the pace that life is and technology and screen addictions and social media and keeping up with all of these things around us that really we evolved from hunter-gatherer societies and small agricultural societies. And our bodies are built to move five miles a day and to be outside and absorbing light (laughs) and sleeping on the ground and hearing, you know, the stimulus of birds. And when I think about um, something like ADHD and just how unnatural classroom settings are today, I... I just, it doesn't surprise me that students struggle. Um, I myself struggled in that sort of setting with a lot of energy. So I, nature was always my healing element. Um, I grew up with bad asthma as a kid and um, was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at age 10. And I hated hospitals. (laughs) I hated the feel of hospitals and just how sterile they were and the light and the smell. And even if I wasn't feeling great, being outside made me feel better. And, you know, having my shoes off and my feet on the ground and just soil under my fingertips. So it's um, it's where we were born and where we're meant to be, in my opinion. Now, you mentioned uh, classrooms today. And I, I just like to point out that classrooms today are very much like classrooms 140 years ago. That's, it's yeah. one of the, the strange phenomenons where uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of change. I mean, imagine if you went back to a classroom 140 years ago, you'd see desks lined up in rows and, uh, you know, kids being taught, you know, in a lot of the same ways that some of those more veteran teachers today uh, tend to teach, right? They're going to stand at the front and lecture yeah. at you. So it, it uh, you know, that situation has been around for a while. I think they're trying to do more today to try and mm-hmm. break away from that particular paradigm and, and be more of uh kind of guided instruction instead of uh sage on the stage, the, the guide on the side is what they're, what they're calling it now. And, and, and try to be a little more innovative and interactive and engaging. But uh, yeah, everything you said about, you know, how we're designed um, totally get it. Totally agree. So that's, that's great. Um, yeah. And And I get it, too, because I'm an educator. (laughs) So um, I went on to be a college professor, and I really tried to reach into that experiential education and, you know, taking my students out as much as possible, because the classroom method was designed for, was actually designed for farm kids, like when um, education started to be more mandated, and everyone had to go to school, and you have kids who aren't used to sitting Um, the bell system of like sit until the bell rings and um, don't move and, you know, stay in your seat. So it's all very uh, artificial and also very structured. And that's just our attention spans are about two to three minutes. (laughs) It's quick. It's quick. And classes can go on for 30 to 40 minutes or or longer or longer than that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, it, you know, it, the school system was built around uh, an agrarian society where you yeah. know, the kids, they had to be out during the summer to to harvest the crops. That's why our school yep. year right now goes from, you know, August yep. or September through June. So, yeah. 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 Crazy. It's it's amazing how things evolve and then they kind of just they, they stay in place because that's the way they've always done them. Yes. 
So not a fan of that. Yeah. <laughs> I like change. I always, I like talking about teenagers cause I'm also in education and you know, nice. is it easier or tougher for, for teenagers today? Is, is this a Ooh. good time to grow up as a teenager? Oh, wow. So the teenage years in general, wow. <laughs> Look at all those hormones going. I would say right now I feel for teenagers because right now it's the generation of pandemic kids. And I think that was a really, really tough three years, um, especially for kids that were developing, teenagers who are developing to go from already an awkward time in life to a very, this has never happened before sort of environment. And a lot of the students that I'm working with today have, you know, terrible anxiety that has developed through the pandemic from isolation, from quarantine, um, either trauma from quarantine and having to like be alone for so long, or actually they're more comfortable now being alone and have social anxiety coming back into the classroom. So I think that coupled with exploring what social media is, um, the depth of it today, how much technology is around us. I think it's, I think it's tougher today than when I was a teenager. Totally agree. I would venture to say that this might be the toughest time ever to be a teenager. Yeah. There are a lot of pressures, a lot of demands, uh, yeah. a lot of uh, anxiety producing forces out there. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I think it's going to get better in the next five to 10 years, because I think a lot's going to be realized through this generation that's coming up that we need time away from screens. We need um, more time in nature. Uh, and so I think it's, it's interesting, um, but I'm starting to sh see that shift already a bit. Yeah. So parents, if you're listening and you've got an angsty teen who is struggling with some issues, go take a hike. Yeah, lots of them, lots yes. of them, because um, there's so much science in, you know, the longer that you're out there, the longer you're on trail. And I think a reason I was pulled to ultra distance in the beginning was it calmed my brain uh, and it actually started to, like, help me work through uh, some of the things I was going through. And it, and it had to be an ultra distance. It had to be a very long day or it just wouldn't get the same effects. So, and go camping. So 72 hours in nature can really start that rewiring process. Is that the magical time limit? 72 hours? It is um, the start of the magic of the magic, but yes, yeah, 72 hours. There's a lot around that of it's the beginning of the, the change where someone can notice that, wow, I feel better than when I did at the beginning of this, because the first 24 hours, you might actually be angry, anxious, um, uncomfortable, um, away from your screen or computer or just regular life. And then the next day you're starting to adjust. And then the third day, you're starting to feel some of the actual benefits of it of, wow, like I'm happier, I'm calmer, um, I'm more confident in myself. So yeah, there's the 72 hour mark and then there's the 21 day mark 
um, for a lot of recovery programs, two month mark and such and such. Got it. All right. Hey, Roadrunner. I like the sound yeah. of that. Yeah, it feels good. Like <laughs> yeah, it's catchy. <laughs> yeah. Roadrunner, have you had a chance to listen to the podcast before? I have. I actually just listened to your last um, podcast. Uh, to be truthful, though, I hadn't before you reached out to me. <laughs> I love it that you volunteered to come on not knowing what you were getting yourself into. So that's that's good. Well, I looked into it. I did. <laughs> I did a little bit of research before just saying yes. <laughs> I want to make sure that you are aware of a segment that we have towards the end of the episode called the hiking hack. And that is where you will have a chance to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. So don't, uh, don't forget about that. Happy to. Okay. Trailblazers toolkit. That's right. It's time for the trailblazers toolkit sponsored by the ultralight backpacking gear company, six moon designs. I love to talk about gear on the podcast, and I love to hear about the most important item in my guest's adventure gear. So, Roadrunner, if you were preparing for your next adventure and I was the one providing you with all your gear, what is the one specific piece of gear you'd insist on being packed? Make sure to give me all the specifics on that piece of gear and tell me why you've got to have it out there. And again, this could be any kind of item. This could be gear, could be apparel, or it could be a luxury item. So, Bethany, what is your what is that item in your toolkit? Okay. So I thought about this when you gave me this question, because it depends if I'm doing a trail run or a long expedition or a high mountain. But then I thought of something that I'm taking to all of these. So it is a piece of gear and it's my shoes. I wear the same shoe. Uh, It's La Sportiva. I love La Sportiva. Uh, It's their Raptor shoe. And I have gotten La Sportiva Raptor since probably 2010 or like 2011. I don't know if it was called Raptor then, but it was like a kind of La Sportiva. And I have worn these on short FKTs, long FKTs. I've worn them into the base camp of Aconcagua. I've worn them in Nepal. So that's what I got to go with. And I just love them because they are a durable shoe. They have grip to them and they last. Okay. So like, I think a lot of other shoes and I've tried other stuff, um, they'll market, you know, they have a really intense grip. I just feel like other soles burn out a lot quicker. Like I can really, I will wear my last Sportivas a lot longer than I probably should, but they still work. And they're still gripping. And the Adirondack terrain, so I am based out of the mountains in New York State. And, you know, some people listening on the West Coast might be like, oh, wow, New York has mountains. Uh, We do. And they are very, very aggressive and treacherous. And, like, they do not have fancy switchbacks up them. They just pretty much, like, run right up vertical and you're gaining like 3000 vertical feet um, over boulders that eat up your shoes. So I just got to go with them. uh, Las Sportivas. And if you have like, I could, you know, come up with something for the trail run versus the five day backpacking trip versus like the three week, but Las Sportiva, it's just 
It's my go-to. And I haven't switched. You know, I've tried other stuff and I've never switched away from them. Are you sponsored by them? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I I want to. They are on my dream list <laughs> to be sponsored by. Um, yeah, that would be my dream. So La Sportiva, I hope you you hear this podcast. <laughs> you're you're already an unofficial uh ambassador for them. I mean, you are 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 swearing by them. They should just yeah. be an official ambassador. I I agree because I have been very loyal <laughs> for over a decade and and that's just where it's like I don't think I could represent another shoe honestly cuz I I just it's La Sportiva for me and it's how long they last and how they grip to the trail. And how, how long will they last? Do you have any idea of, you know, the duration or the, the mileage you can put on them? Oh, geez. I put on hundreds of miles and I keep them for about a year or two. Um, more than likely, like even before the soul, the soul doesn't usually degrade enough for me to like get rid of it. It's like, I'll still use it for, a running shoe i might not use it for like my really fast trail runs because i'll use like a newer one but i can use it in a backpacking sense for i mean i've gotten use for them for two years um i love the raptor too because they make a high top raptor as well which is perfect for long trail um stuff i like the high top for a little bit of ankle support Okay. And I love talking to East Coast guests because they have that little bit of moxie. You talk about oh, the, yeah. the aggressive <laughs> mountains in, in the East and you know they, they have a little bit of disdain for the fancy switchbacks, as you said, in, in the West Coast. Uh, well, it, yeah. And, and I'll be playful about it too, because I have a lot of West Coast friends who just give me crap about like our East Coast mountains and this is the beast coast and, and rightfully so. <laughs> um, I, I love the West coast though. And that's why, you know, I joke about it too, because I love the, the Sierra Nevada, uh, the, you know, the Cascades. Uh, I just love the West. The West is amazing in so many different ways. And the East coast, I think has some of the toughest terrain and some of the worst just like conditions, like from bugs to mud to, um, to everything. So if you grow up in the East coast and like the Adirondacks were my first like ever exposure to trails. So I was just like, Oh, this is what it is. And I actually grew up like trail running on that. So it translated well to other terrain that wasn't as technical. Yeah, you talk to hikers and climbers who have primarily been in, say, in Colorado or California, and you tell them about the, you know, the 4,000 foot mountains on the East Coast. They're like, what? Really? I mean, that, is that a hills? thing? The are they, they're, they're not really mountains, are they? Yeah. But I've, yeah. Talked to, I've talked to enough people from the East Coast and who have done the AT uh, to realize that, you know, there is something to that, that you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's very rugged. There are no fancy switchbacks in a lot of places and you're, you're going straight up. Yeah. Through trees, you know, it's out West is great. Cause you get above the, the tree line and, uh, but you have different risk out there too, you know, with like lightning and storms and altitude. So it, it's all different. Um, but it's pretty like thick and rugged on the East. 
All right. Well, let's continue talking about gear. It's the hiking pole. It's time for the hiking pole. And I want to point out that that is pole spelled P-O-L-L, like a survey, not like the thing you hold in your hand out there. I think I'm pretty clever that I came up with that and I explain it every time. (laughs) And the reaction is pretty much the same by the guest. So thank you for for holding true to that. This is a a seven question survey that's going to help me give you a score on the sanity scale from one to one. From one okay. to hundred, with one being completely insane and one hundred being completely sane. <laughs> okay, now somebody with your level of experience and being out there on the trails and in the mountains, it's an automatic deduction of twenty-five points. So your highest possible score is seventy-five. Okay, is that, is that fair? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, if I, if I were to ask your your, your partner to give you a score on the sanity scale, what, what do you think you'd say? All uh, insane. Yeah. Yeah. South, south the, of 50. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a, that's a term or word that's used to describe me a lot. I think it's, I think it's insane to like run a marathon on the road. <laughs> um, but yeah, what I do, a lot of people just think is pretty, pretty nuts. Okay. So seven questions. We'll start off with an easy one. Uh, trekking poles or no trekking poles? And when you give me your answer, it's always good to give a little bit of explanation. So I, that helps with the the scoring. Yeah. Uh, trekking poles, yes. I've lost three pairs pretty recently because what I do is like I'll start running with them. And then like when I want to do the summit, I'll stash them, but then I won't find them again. Um, trekking poles for more of the long stuff with a heavier pack if i'm going shorter and faster i want to probably not use them but again like i'm such a i want to use them half the time and not half the time um i didn't use trekking poles though for a very long time Um, more consistently i started like seven years ago and that was just advice given to me of like save your knees and so i i bring them i lose them (laughs) And I have to get new ones. Okay. Question number two. I think we already know the answer. What's on your feet? Boots or trail runners? Trail runners. La Sportiva. <laughs> All the time. Winter, spring, summer, fall. That's right. Keep pumping that La Sportiva. Maybe they're gonna they're gonna listen yeah. in. They're gonna hear about this. <laughs> All right. They're gonna be like Bethany, we know you've told us. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When it comes to your shelter system on overnight uh, excursions out there you prefer a tent tarp hammock bivy or hey let's just cowboy camp uh tent i really like a one person uh ultralight tent i I like tents they give me i don't know i just i like to write so i like to bring my journal um and i had a hole in my tent once and like a mouse fell in the top so (laughs) That was pretty funny. Had to get the mouse out. Um, But I would say like if I'm on an ultra really quick event, I I do like to just like roll out my sleeping pad and sleep right under the stars too. So either a tent or just on the ground to save time. Now you have to tell me about the mouse falling into the tent. Was there, was there any bit of panic when that happened? Because I can tell you that if I was in my tent and a mouse (laughs) fell into my tent, 
there'd be a little bit of panic involved. I'd be, I'd be oh, moving yeah. pretty quick. Yeah, I really, it was, it was pretty awful because I'm in my sleeping bag and the mouse literally fell on like the one piece of flesh it could have, like it fell right on my face. It got in my hair. And so I just sat up and, you know, I didn't even have my hands cause they're in my sleeping bag. And so I just sit up and I was kind of in that half dream space, but I was like, I'm pretty sure a mouse just fell on my head. And I sat up and got my, cause you still have to get the headlamp out. And so I got the headlamp and sure enough, there was this little mouse in the corner of my tent and I looked up and there was a hole. I was borrowing this tent um, from a friend because I was just trying out this really like ultralight version and they have the most like usually like up-to-date ultralight gear, this friend of mine, who's a real tech head, because honestly, I'm not a very big gear head. I would rather just like be outfitted. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then I had to like get the mouse out of the tent. And then I stuffed up the hole with some duct tape and um, tried to go back to sleep the best I could. <laughs> yeah, it'd be tough. Get the adrenaline down and out of your system. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sure it was an ultralight tent because it was missing pieces. I mean, it was really ultralight. Yes, yes. <laughs> not much <laughs> between me and anything. <laughs> All right. Um, question number four. I think we just heard the yep. answer to this, but I ask, I'll ask it anyway. When it comes to your sleep system, a sleeping bag or quilt? Sleeping bag uh, or liner. So, like, depending on temperature. Um, I have gone a liner, like a very ultralight liner with then like an emergency um, bivy around it. If But that's warm summertime. Um, other than that, I'm using a sleeping bag because I do tend to sleep cold. Um, yeah, I get cold at night. So I like the sleeping bag. Have you ever tried a quilt? I have. Yeah. Um, I just heat up a little bit better in a bag. Okay. That might be the name of this episode. That was, that was good. I yeah. Just heat up better in a bag <laughs> yep. with Bethany Roadrunner Garrettson. Yes. Perfect. Love it. <laughs> Gotta right, make, make the East coast sound amazing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> question number five, when it comes to food, you carry a stove, do you cold soak or do you go stoveless? Oh, it depends on the amount of days out there. If I'm pushing uh, like a week long or even over four days, I'm going to take a stove, just a pocket rocket. Um, I love them. They're so small. Um, it's not much to pack in anyway. Um, but then I do have a friend. She makes dehydrated meals that um, can hydrate really well just with cold water. So there's been some times that I don't take stoves, especially if I'm just going to be going faster and lighter. But if it's more of a backpacking experience, um, like I did the the John Muir Trail, the People's Trail, uh, I'm definitely taking a stove on that. Okay. Question number six, is life better above or below the tree line? Ooh, above. Oh, you surprised me on that one. You know, being from the yeah. East Coast, people swear by, by you know, being in the trees and in amongst the, the forest. 
And no. I, I totally expected you to go that direction. See, I've been on the West Coast a bit. I The trees really bug me at times. Like I, I've had my biggest probably like hissy fits bushwhacking through the trees and like they get in your hair and, you know, like poke you and hit you. And I just love, you know, the the alpine glow and watching the sunrise on, you know, like I've been on Mount Baker, um, Mount Adams, you know, out West. And I just, yeah, nothing beats that. I would, if I had to like go one last place before I died, I would just want to be on a mountain, you know, above tree line. Okay. Is that, is that written into your, to your trust, your living trust? Yes. <laughs> It is now. It's like you must take me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, I haven't I have in my living trust that my ashes are to be spread on Forester Pass. Oh. My kids nice. aren't thrilled about that. And my wife no. my wife tells them, Don't worry, he won't know. So don't worry about that. <laughs> <No. Yeah. laughs> it's like you really will know because I'll be watching you. <laughs> I'm gonna end up in a planner somewhere. All right. Question number seven. Uh, what's more important, pack weight or luxury items? Oh, pack weight. Are you the kind of hiker that uh, breaks your toothbrush in half, cuts all the extra yep. straps off your pack? Yeah, I actually get those little toothbrushes that are the travel toothbrushes that are just like a little pick and a little thing. That's all I take. That is one step above finding a stick on the ground and rubbing your teeth with that. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> what is your base weight when you're out there on a, on a, say the, the John Muir trail? What if you were to, if you were to pack your bag for the John Muir trail today, what would your base weight be? Um, Around 20 to 30 with the food drop option. So, uh, I mean, my base without food is around 10 comfortably. And then with food, I, I pack, I mean, I, I get hungry. So it's definitely the most weight is my food. And if I pack any sort of luxury items, it's a little bit of food because of my ulcerative colitis. And if I eat just dehydrated meals, like my system will really not do well with that. So I have to pack a lot of whole foods so that accounts for a lot of the weight. Like like a whole watermelon? <laughs> no, but like, you know, like a whole loaf of bread or something. Got it. You know, okay. torts, I like to take um, wraps, <laughs> you know, peanut butter. Peanut butter is good, like a block of cheese, you know, stuff like that. That's just like, you know, not so preserved. Yeah, I hiked with a young lady last summer who brought a whole jar of jelly, a glass jar nice. of jelly. Yeah glass <laughs> mm -hmm. see i would i would take it out and put it in like a plastic squeezy thing <laughs> but right there that's a hiking hack that's just yep. one you're still on the hook for later so don't uh don't think you're done all oh, right hey well, stand, I got by, <laughs> stand by stand by pink lightning i've got to okay. do some math here take your answers put them through the algorithm i've got to carry the three we're gonna multiply that by root five and divide by pi and you know what? Just for fun, we're going we're going to factor in and adjust for the adrenaline rush from having a mouse drop on your face while in a tent. And <laughs> yeah. I come up with a score of 52 for you. 52. 
Okay. I like that. It's in the middle. Right there in the middle. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you made a lot of sense, but you you got this edge to you. So. Yeah. I've lived a lot. Yep. <laughs> that's another that's another great suggestion for the episode name. I've lived a lot. I've lived a lot. Yes. Like, all right. Yep. Hey, before we get too far down the trail, Bethany, let's back up a little bit. Let's t- tell me okay. about your background. Where did you grow up? Did you play any sports and hobbies uh, while you were growing up? And how did you get involved in the outdoor adventure cult? Definitely. So I grew up in a little town called Cherry Valley, New York. It's in central New York. It's a, it's a farming town. So I grew up on a farm. My dad was a dairy farmer and my mom was the school nurse. So she knew about everything I was doing um, throughout my, my school career. Cause it was a K through 12 school. You know, it was a small school um, graduated about like 70 in my class So I did, I played sports. I loved soccer, loved basketball. Soccer was my first love. You know, I wanted to be on the, you know, national soccer team. I really, really idolized the women of 19, uh, it was 1999 World Cup, I think. Um, I got to see them play like when I was little and I've just loved following soccer ever since. So you know, soccer, I never got as far. I played in college, but I never got as far as I really wanted to. And so when I came out of college, uh, you know, I had been a two-sport athlete my whole life, a very good athlete. And I it actually hit me that summer I graduated. I was like, wow, I'm not getting ready for a training season. I'm not... I'm never going to be on a team again. Um, I don't have a sport. And it was really sad. And I just started to look around me of what I could do. And I was living in the Lake Placid area at that time. And there was um, the Ironman. And I looked into that. And I went to a bike shop. And I looked at uh, the cost of a bike. And I was like, well, I'm not doing that. (laughs) So... um, I had no money and, but I had shoes. Um, I had running shoes. You know, I, I always ran on the side. Um, lots of times they tried to recruit me to like run track um, when I was younger. And it, I just found it to be so boring to like run around a track. I had to be chasing something like a ball um, for running to be fun for me, but I always did it as like a training, you know, to keep my body conditioned. So I had running shoes and like an old soccer backpack and I just you know started hiking and I would just go to a trailhead and you know I certainly wouldn't advise this I was not really following a lot of the advice that older hikers give younger hikers I didn't have a map I didn't have appropriate gear I just would go in and I would either summit or I would just turn around um, come back out. Uh, I was hiking solo. I was experimenting with trail running. I I thought I invented trail running. Um, that's how naive I was to this whole world. Like around me, I, I had no idea about mountain sports. I really didn't. Um, I had grown up so much like just a team sport 
player, but I started running and I was like, wow, I wonder if like people actually do this. And um, yes, they do. <laughs> I, I went to like a gear shop after and it's like, oh, Trail Runner magazine. What do you know? That is funny. That is yeah. that's a moment right there. I think in, you, you invented trail running. That's that's great. Oh, yeah. And I'm not kidding. You know, it's like it it was a very like innocent, genuine thought when I was 23 years old and um, the mountain running specifically. So, no, that was already well invented. And I was a little late to the scene, but I'm so glad I got there because I really didn't think I would ever find something that I loved as much as soccer. And I and I, I can say I have. You know, I, I love this and it's, it's my passion and I think it really is my, my sport and my life sport. So it's pretty cool. That's fantastic. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear about some of your adventures out there. So let's hear from the sponsors, pay some bills, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water. Using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going, knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. This episode is sponsored by Jolly Gear. Are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button-down and the full protection of a sun hoodie? With the Triple Crown button-down, you can have the best of both. Plus, their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail. Visit them at jollygear.com. Thru-hiker owned, Jolly Gear, where fun meets functional. Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. With a wide range of products ranging from ultralight shelters to backpacks and accessories like their extensive line of trekking umbrellas, Six Moon Designs is sure to have a great piece of gear for your needs. With the company philosophy being that gear should aid one's experience, not define it, Six Moon Designs thinks the more time people spend outside the natural world, the better off this world will be. And remember, go wild, live young. And welcome back. We are talking to Bethany Gerritsen, a.k.a. Roadrunner, a.k.a. Pink Lightning, a.k.a. Official Ambassador for La Sportiva. Yeah. Uh, and we heard about your background. Oh, I forgot to ask you, uh, growing up on a dairy farm, there are yep. certain odors associated with dairy farming. Yeah. Yes. Is it, Did you get used to it? I would say there are some smells you'll never forget. And sometimes 
there's like the nice sweet smell of manure, but then there's sometimes like what just happens and it's almost the like liquid um, diarrhea that cows have. And that smells awful. So no, <laughs> it's not great. I want to make sure I get this right in, for the show notes. You said the nice sweet smell of manure, right? I yep. that right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, that reminds me of my childhood in a nice way. Like when I'm going by farms and, I smell that and farm kids might get this. I don't know if anyone else will, but there's just some smells on farms that you don't get used to. And yeah, no matter how long you're around farms. Okay. Now, before we talk about the beast coast and the, uh, the ADK 46, uh, let's talk about the West coast. You've had some experience on the West coast. You alluded to tell us about some of your adventures out there. Where, Where have you been on the West coast? Ooh, well, I love the West Coast. The West Coast is beautiful. The first time I came West, I was 29 going on 30, and I drove across the U.S. and with my younger sister, and we hit a lot of the national parks along the way and um, spent some time in Utah and California. Uh, That was the first time I saw the Sierra Nevada. And I just was like, oh, got to come back to that. Um, spent some time in Yosemite. And I think it was around that age, too. I just wanted to start climbing higher mountains. So Mount Adams would have been the first time like I came back to the West Coast and went up Mount Adams uh, with some friends in July. Uh, so much fun. And so beautiful and just remember like camping and, you know, seeing the sunset and looking out at all the other mountains in that area, you know, just like the, the cascades. And then I came out for the John Muir trail, did some other road trips too. You know, I was a professor for eight years and just about every winter break, I would come out and do Uh, road trips in the area, not like the big mountains, but I would, you know, get to a lot of the national parks and do a lot of backpacking and camping and just like car camping. And then came out for the John Muir Trail, the People's Trail. That was 2018, 2018 did that Um, in about, I think we did it like 10 days. Um, I did it with a, a small group of people. And that was just amazing. That's a, that's a pretty good clip. All, you know, 10 days to the whole trail. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we were gearing up for Aconcagua. So that was, um, some of the team that I was going to go to Aconcagua with in 2019. So the highest peak in the Americas, um, it's right around 23,000 feet. So, you know, just doing some like ultralight backpacking through the Sierra Nevada, um, some elevation training. Now we, we love the John Muir trail. I spent a lot of time on the John Muir trail. Any, any favorite parts or sections, uh, campsites you, you remember? Yes. Um, I love guitar Lake. So right before you get to Mount Whitney, that might have been my favorite night. Um, yeah, I just, there was something about that. That was just really special and beautiful and i remember like 
where we camped and near the water. And then I just like went up and into the boulders and like bouldered around a little bit. And I would also, I just try to like find nooks to go write and read. Um, so I remember Guitar Lake. There's, you know, just like, I feel like every camping spot on that trip was stunning and amazing. And I also love Yosemite. So, um, you know, the start point in Yosemite is pretty amazing too. Yeah, that is, that is an epic trail. Guitar Lake, uh, you know, just being by the side of that lake with, with Mount Whitney looming yeah. uh, above yeah. you is, is pretty epic. Yeah. All right. Now you mentioned using the JMT as maybe some altitude training for your, your venture down to Argentina and Mount, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a try. Mount, you said it so well, I, I'm nervous now. Uh, Aconcagua. It's okay. Yeah. Nice job. Okay. It took All me right. a long time to say that. <laughs> yes. So tell us about that trip. I mean, there's a big difference between Mount Whitney at 14,505 and a mountain that's 23,000. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So at that time too, I wanted to pursue higher mountains and I was really on that path up till 2020 and that will transition nicely into the 46 high peaks because at this time in my life, I wanted to go after some of the seven summits. I wanted to go after some of the, you know, the 14, like the eight, thousand meter peaks and i've spent some time in nepal for other things um but going back to aconcagua in south america that so a tester for altitude is um right around that you want to test yourself at the eight thousand um foot mark and also the fourteen thousand foot mark and see if your body is having any like real adverse reactions to it because if it does, that's not a great sign. You almost want to just hit benchmarks to see if, it, you know, is it worth for me to go to um, South America and try this? For me, I have never had an issue with altitude. I've always adjusted really well to it. I didn't even, I, I mean, sometimes when I went out West and I was running around, like I didn't even wait to adjust to altitude. It just never really hit me in any way. And I was wondering why some people around me were sick. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> um, but, and that is a testing, like you're testing gear systems, you're testing like how your body's doing with the altitude, like going up and over the passes, like how long it takes to adjust. And, and you'll notice like it's different every time when someone steps into the mountain. So just to say that like once you had success with altitude doesn't mean you're going to have it again. But there are some telltale signs that you can see early on for people. So it's important to like, I think it's important if you can work it into your schedule to, to go west, try yourself on some of the peaks around 14,000 feet to see if to see just what you feel like there, because that's what your base camp is going to be, you know, and that's just the starting point. Yeah. You know what I felt at 14,000 feet? What? I felt tired. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of air. I felt live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I felt the best on Mount Whitney, you know, and that's just, 
I notice my body like gets stronger each day on trail. It just, it really like loves being out there. Now I'm jealous. I, I wish I had yeah. that kind of uh, genetic predisposition. Yeah. <laughs> I got some good genes. <laughs> yes. Now, when you went down to Argentina, did you do that as a solo trip or did you go in a group? How did that work? I went with a group. So in Cherry Valley, I had a family friend who was, um, you know, uh, 15 years older than me, but he was really well known. He climbed Everest. Uh, he was the young, he still is the youngest American ever to summit Kenchenjunga, um, the third highest peak in the world. And he was on Lotse, um, near Lotse. He didn't summit when, um, the 1996 disaster, uh, the one that John Krakauer wrote about into thin air. He was there that season. So I always looked up to him in sort of like this sort of, you know, just superhero lore way. So he um, started mentoring me and I went with him and a few other people from our area. So um, it was all self you know, we didn't have guides or anything. It was, it was us on the mountain and he had been there um, twice before. Got it. And what, what's his name? Uh, Tim Horvath. Tim Horvath. Yeah. If you look up, you might find him in some like old mountaineering journals, not old, but older. You think he'd be up for a podcast? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Can I, can I drop yeah. your name? Totally. Yeah. Okay. Totally. Love it. He's Love got, it. he's got a lot of stories. You know, he's the guy who's talking at the end of the night and you're just like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. This isn't that bad. <laughs> right. Right. Now give us the logistics on Aconcagua. Um, I know if you're to do Mount Whitney, that's a, if you're doing it a day trip, that is a, like a 22 mile trip up to 14,505. What, what, how many days uh, did it take you to do Aconcagua? So we had planned for a 21 day expedition um, into country, out of country. So that's all your travel included too, which I think is a good buffer to do. We did not summit. We got up to about 20,000 feet. So we were up to our summit push camp and one of our team members got really sick it was um appearing that they might have had haste so like high altitude cerebral edema um, which is swelling of the brain and will result in death if you don't descend so we evac'd from our high camp um got that member down to base camp and just did not have the energy to reascend the mountain now, Bethany, it's just you and me here. You, you can tell me the truth. No, no one else is listening in. Um, did it ever occur to you that, hey, you know, I'm almost to the top. You know, j just, you know, I'm I'm going to make a run for it. I'll be right back. Yeah. Oh, I thought about that. Um, it was it was such a it was such a horrible experience, though, too, um, because I, and you should get Tim on your podcast because it was actually Tim's son who was sick and he was 13 years old at the time. So it was, it was very, um, it was just, it felt gripping in a way because like he was so young that we just had to get him down. I actually like, 
I started to cry. And when you're crying at about 20,000 feet, your body is almost going into shock. And it, I didn't really know I was crying, but I wasn't able to like really evacuate either. So I stayed up with another team um, and they took care of me that night because I was in shock um, because Tim and Henry are their friends, their family friends. And I just, I couldn't imagine if something happened to him and so it was <laughs> the next morning, though, like when I was feeling better and I got the radio call that they had um, helicoptered out to Mendoza, I was like, I was like, well, maybe I'll go up with the British team here. <laughs> but I was also so wrecked. Like um, when you, yeah, when something like that happens at 20,000 feet, you're just like, it, it takes a lot out of you. Wow, way to make me feel really bad about asking that question. I feel I feel like a, a complete jerk now for for even no, no. that. Tell me the details no. on that. Holy smokes! No, no, and I, <laughs> I, but I like that you asked it because I mean, even how severe it was, like I still thought about it the next day. I didn't want to go down. None of us did, you know. But you, especially when I mean, when we knew Henry was okay. You know, you don't want to go home, but you also, I think, really physically know that you just can't go back up and have it be safe um, to do or even do it within your timeline. So um, but this was it was a really big trip for me just learning about higher mountain expeditions. Um, We were doing very well on that expedition up until that point. Um, I ended up writing about that expedition for outside magazine because because of henry's age he was so young that you're actually supposed to be 14 to be on aconcagua but because of tim's mountaineering background he had gotten a written approval for henry to be on the mountain but when they were helicoptered off and they landed in mendoza it broke that a 13 year old had just been rescued And that caused a lot of controversy of why he should have been there, if he should have been there in the first place. So I, being an academic, started asking the questions of like, well, is it a higher risk for a 13-year-old to be there for the altitude and his brain, like a teenage brain and altitude? So I pitched that to outside and they, they took it on and I started to research for that and um, ended up writing a piece on it. Well, don't keep us in suspense. You have to look it up and go read it. I have to go read. <laughs> oh, okay. Go read the no. article. No, um, it was great. I got to speak with, um, you know, the leading specialist in high altitude. You know, there's not, not a ton of research done on it. There's more today than ever because of all the families that are actually going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and um, taking younger kids with them. So really the findings suggest that age doesn't have much to do with it at all. Um, If you are old enough to report your symptoms, um, you you should have the same, uh, I would say like effect. Um, you know, it is cautioned if you have a kid who's really unable to report what they might be feeling, you know, don't take them to altitude. Um, but in the study, um, it's actually the demographic of young 
men who are in a group setting, they are at the most risk of actually dying of high altitude illnesses because of simply not saying anything and just wanting to keep up with the group. Yep. That makes sense. I, I used to be yeah. in that young, young male category. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. That was so a, that's the results. That was a long time ago though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned, you mentioned the British team. Yeah. And so I, I want to ask a follow-up on that. Any, anybody can go to um, Lone Pine, go to the ranger station and, and get a, a walk-up permit for Mount Whitney. If you're lucky. Right. Mm. And you can, you can hike up there to the top of Mount Whitney. Now, when you're dealing with, with a mountain that's 23,000 feet high, uh, is it truly an expedition you need to be, I mean, what is the vetting process? How much experience do you need? Do you need to be part of a team? Hmm. So for Aconcagua in 2019, and I'm not sure how much has changed during the pandemic. So that would be a follow-up to look into Aconcagua in 2019, you know, we landed in Mendoza. We got our permits the next day. We were on the mountain the next day. We just set up for um, some mulers to help transport our gear to base camp. Um, Aconcagua is one I feel you're not vetted super hard. I don't feel like on lots of the mountains in the world, it comes down more to money. You know, if you can pay your way in, you can get a crack at Everest. You know, that's, that's a lot different than what it used to be and having to get on a climbing team. So um, I know for a mountain like Kilimanjaro, you know, you have to go with local guides and support that, that industry, which I do support, you know, that's a business um, for lots of countries um nepal i think is issuing something similar too with a lot of their peaks but aconcagua i think is still a peak where you can do a self-expedition but i would look into um how the pandemic hit that got it any thoughts on what sir edmund hillary would say about the state of uh climbing mount everest is these days Mm. sir edmund hillary I don't know. You know, I, I, I like that a lot more people can go and do this and it's not just a team of um, kind of snooty men <laughs> um, from a privileged society. Um, it, it still is run by a lot of money, but I like seeing representation from different cultures and backgrounds. So I don't know if he would have liked it. Um I have a book signed by him. No way. Yeah. Which yeah, book? I got it from a Nepali friend. Uh, it's just an Everest book, but he had signed it. So I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. And I get that from, you know, some people, like even with the high peaks, because there's so many more people out hiking them. And um, I just, I like that for the diversity and inclusion of people being out there and also the mental health benefits. You know, I just would, I don't want to see just a few people out in the mountains. I do want to see a lot of people out in the mountains. Yeah. If you want to be alone out there, I mean, go, go hike the Hey Duke. Yeah. 
I don't know where that is. Where is that? <laughs> well, that that's in Utah. You you okay, Bethany? You need to do some research on the Hayduke Trail. The Hayduke Trail. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Are you familiar with the Monkey Wrench Gang? Yes. The book. That's Abby. George. Yes, that's right. George George Hayduke was a character in that book, and uh, somebody uh-huh. created this trail. It's not really a trail. Created this route uh, that kind of connects, goes through the different national parks in Utah. That is very cool. very difficult and it's called the hey cool. Duke. there's a, there's a documentary called figuring it out on the hey duke you probably find it on on youtube nice well Very i will look that up yes sweet all right hey let's uh let's come back to the states here and we, okay. we mentioned in the intro we'd referenced a couple times i think fkts can you share with our listeners what what is an fkt sure so an fkt is a fastest known time and They have been around for a while. I started to look at them. There was really only a few that I had heard of, though. I, being a wilderness therapy instructor, lived very much off the grid for a lot of my life uh, without a cell phone, uh, without a computer, only to write with. You know, it's not like I had Wi-Fi or anything. Um, A friend pointed out to me in 2018 that there's a website for fastest known times. And because up until that point, I had heard about the big ones, you know, the PCT, the um, Appalachian Trail, and being in the Adirondacks, I heard about the 46, you know, the 46 speed records. And, and that's how I first heard about them. They were called speed records. And now, Beth, really, let me stop yeah. you just for a second, because I have yeah. to ask, I have to ask. Before your friend told you about the FKT website, did you think that you had invented it? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I invented speed record, records, but like this was this was after I went to that store and saw the article on like Trail Runner or like Trail Runner magazine. So um, that, that would be funny. <laughs> so at that point in the game, I knew I had invented it, that there was a whole sport already out there. Um, which was pretty exciting. So, but still I only focused on one. I focused on one FKT for 10 years uh, and that was the 46 unsupported through hike. And that just, that drew me in, um, because of how hard it is and doing it unsupported and having to limit your food, Um, And your pack weight to just get up and over these mountains, you know, the vertical gain, I think is 64,000 feet over 183 miles. Um, You know, it just really it's, um, it's a logistical puzzle uh, to complete it. And I had tried it once in 2016, got halfway through had to drop, had really hot temperatures um, come in. And And then I got into higher mountains and I just didn't really think I was going to return to this. But I think FKT has kept coming back to me, honestly, Um, because 2020 was when the pandemic hit and it shut down racing and FKTs exploded around the country and around the world because professional athletes were turning to something else. And I think that's when I really started to tune in around, wow, this is like gaining a lot of momentum right now. And so for Katie and I getting it in 2020, you know, the year that it was booming was pretty amazing. And 
um, the through hike was, it was my fifth FKT. So I was still like very new to the game. I had just gotten Strava in 2020. Um, and, and I, I really just had to up my game technology-wise because FKTs were booming so much and the verification process was a lot different because when I had first started to hear about speed records, it was just like, oh, write a trail report, you know, for your longer ones. And then all of a sudden it was, or maybe not all of a sudden, but by the time I got in the game, it was like, you know, your GPS watches and the Stravas and the apps and all these things that I really didn't know how to use. So that kind of intimidated me a bit. Now, I'm just I'm I'm smiling because I'm I'm tickled by the that I know it didn't happen this way, but I, I'm tickled by this concept <laughs> of you know your, your earlier story about uh, uh, trail running, thinking that you had invented trail running. Yeah, I, I picture these conversations with you and your friends and. And that, hey, I'm just spitballing <laughs> here, but what if, what if there was like this thing where you timed how long it took and, you know, we, we yeah. recognize the person who was the fastest and we call it something like, I don't know, fastest known time. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. And then what if, what if yeah. there was an app, what if there was an app or, or some kind of device that could keep track of where you were? I mean, we should invent that. Yeah. That would be awesome. We could call it, uh, I don't know, like Strava or something. Yeah. I, yeah. I just, this is this is just a fun bit to to play in my mind as I'm, I'm listening to you talk about this. Now you did a great job explaining FKT, and you mentioned the ADK 46 unsupported. Yeah. Um, let's delve into that a little bit, a little bit more. You said it was like 183 miles, 64,000 feet of elevation gain. What are the ADK 46? Okay, so in the Adirondack Mountains, the like the northern part of New York pretty close to Canada, you have 46 mountains that are over 4,000 feet. And they are very rugged. Some of them have herd paths, so not maintained trails. Um, Just about 20 of them are not maintained trails. And it's a pretty simple concept that becomes very hard is you have to hike all of them without any aid. So no car rides no gear drops not even like a cliff bar from someone on trail who's passing by it's unsupported you are hiking continuously and um it's just i mean that's what it boils down to you know you have to hike them all and you have to do it without any support and it gives people about I think realistically, depending on how heavy you want to go, for me, realistically, it's a seven to eight day window um, or under that, um, just with weather too in the Adirondacks. Like we don't get these beautiful bluebird stretches of weather. You know, we just, you know, it's like, okay, here's three days of rain and then three days of sun and you want to go as light as possible. There's my but, East Coast hiker again talking, you know, a little yeah. bit saying about the the bluebird weather out in the West. We don't get that as much out here. Yeah, um, you don't get a sunburn out here either. I do remember when I headed out to the John Muir Trail. My one um, Tim, who I went out hiking with, and two other people, like he gave me crap. I didn't even bring sunglasses out west. Like, how ridiculous is that? Because and he's like, What do you mean you didn't bring sunglasses? Your eyes are gonna be like burnt out of your head. And I was like, Well, I didn't bring sunscreen either. 
And he's like, well, you need to go into town and you need to get sunscreen and sunglasses. <laughs> now, Bethany, correct me if I'm wrong, but but the ADK 46, some people make this a hobby of theirs and mm-hmm. they are happy with just completing all 46 during their lifetime. They, they plan yeah. it out. They, they, they do a couple of peaks here and there. Um, there's also uh, this, this concept called gridding where they, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. they, they try and every month, each, every month. That's right. Climb, climb yeah. one of those every month. Um, but you, I mean, you did not have it. I mean, you were able to, and this is just blows me away. You're able to do all 46 peaks, all 183 miles in seven days, four minute, four hours and 50 minutes. Yep. That is Without ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, I'm super proud of it. You know, like I, I'm definitely not one of those people where it's like, oh, it's no big deal. Like anyone can do it. It's like, no, that was that was hard. It hasn't been repeated um, by another woman since Katie and I did it. You know, we were the first women to do it. It was historic. It's a, it's amazing. Like I. I look up, I look back on it today because I'm writing about it and I'm like, wow, there's my bucket list. Now what, you know, (laughs) Um, I worked for that for so long and um, yeah, it's amazing. And it's, um, it will forever be the biggest week of my life. So spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. (laughs) For sure. Now, uh, tell us about Katie. Who is Katie? So Katie Rhodes is a badass mountain woman. And she found me on the Fastest Known Time website because before I had, I, you know, <laughs> before I really knew about Fastest Known Times, I had actually acquired some. And then once I got on the website, I was like, oh, well, I have this one and I have that one and I should, you know, like enter it. Um, so Katie found me on the website and she had heard about me in a few other places too. And she just reached out to me on social media. And so for all the evils of social media, I'm very thankful for social media because it's connected me with some amazing people that I would have never met otherwise. And Katie is one of them. And she just had a bomber resume you know, doing some of the biggest hikes in the Northeast, uh, you know, the Pemi Loop in New Hampshire, the Great Range Traverse in the Adirondacks. And she was just solid and she expressed interest and wanting to do the unsupported. And I was like, yes, because I didn't want to try to do it again by myself. And I had never found a partner really for it. You know, someone I had vetted a few people, we had gone out on some hikes. Um, you know, they were pretty <laughs> dismantled by the end of it. Um, you know, just the trial hikes for it. And you're looking for someone who can go the ultra distances, but can also backpack and camp and have all those expedition skills. And that's a rare person. And, um, but I went out with Katie and she had it and we, we had only known each other for three months when we set out to do this together. And she dedicated it to her brother, Tim, 
um, and to 46 Climbs, which is an organization that raises awareness for mental health and suicide prevention. Well, congratulations to both of you. That is that is quite the accomplishment. And still, it, it blows me away that you're able to to do it in that time period. No, no other females had done it prior to then? No, to our knowledge, mm-hmm. not unsupported. So, um, and that's where fastest known times, they fall into different categories. There's unsupported, there's supported, there's self-supported. So, of course, it had been done in a supported manner before, um, and the month before we did it, it actually just got lowered, um, really for the first time, because before that, I think the record was around six days supported. And then Alyssa Gadeski, she lowered it to three days, um, seven, uh, 16 hours, I think in a supported manner where you can get car aid, um, to and from, And um, so it was a big year for women on that record because we got a supported record and we got an unsupported record. If you could drive cars in between the points, I mean, I've got the, then I've got the fastest supported time from Los Angeles to Vegas. Nice. Yeah. Put that on the website. (laughs) That's right. There you go. There you go. And they'll be like, oh, no, no, it has to be on your feet. Like so much (laughs) of the time. Yeah. Well, Pink Lightning, what is the next big adventure for you? What what's what do you have in your sights? Well, it's it's almost wrapping up two of the adventures I've been on. One is um getting to a hundred FKTs because after the through hike, I did really fall in love with FKTs and started to look at other ones I could do. In twenty twenty one, I tried to lower Alyssa's record on the forty six supported. And I got to about 38 of the peaks, 38 peaks um, in 60 something hours, but I was behind her time by probably an hour. And so I dropped out of that one. But leading up to that, I just started to do fastest known times to almost practice for that. And so I was acquiring FKTs and starting to look at the leaders of um, quantity you know, the people who were either close to a hundred or close to 50. And I just started to think about like, well, what if I went for 50 or what if I went for a hundred? And I don't think I was too serious about it, but as it started to like snowball, I just started to realize how important it was for women to be higher up on the list. Um, but it was also important for me as a person to like go on these journeys and to push myself as an athlete and to also like just advocate for women. And um, because some people think, you know, there are too many FKTs or like that FKT is too short or this one's like, you know, people have a lot of opinions on these things. And I just find that a lot of the opinions come from men. And men tend to boast about themselves more and women tend to like shy away a little bit more. And I'm just like, I don't care. You know, I'm going to say what I feel. So if I can like clear the way a little bit for others, you know, to be in that space, that's what I've been trying to focus on for the last few years. Well, that's, that's tremendous. And and thank you for doing that. Um, do, you, do you FKTers, do you all, are you all the same uh, text message group? guys you know talk to each other a lot no no (laughs) No, 
we're all over the world. I, for me, most of the people that I see on the website, you know, they're just names. Um, they're all over the world. You know, there's, there's names I certainly know on the East coast and, you know, sometimes we will, if, um, you know, sometimes you give the person whose record you're going for a heads up that you are, but sometimes you don't. And I, and I think because there's so many FKTs at this point, I, I wouldn't say that's necessary um, except for the big ones. Like um, you should reach out for some of the big ones of like, Hey, I'm going for your record. So I, I find it, it's a mixed bag. You know, some people are very like mentoring about giving information on routes and other people are kind of standoffish on it. Um, but it's, Hey, it's whatever um, people prefer so i had a chance to talk to uh buzz burrell yeah yeah he was awesome to talk to real 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 fun interview Uh, i talked to jason hardrath who i think has 100 plus fkts and jeff garmeyer has been a regular on the podcast nice he recently set the uh the john muir trail fkt which is just mind-blowing to me i mean he he did 211 miles in like 70 72 hours which no means like 70 miles, <laughs> I, 70 miles a day. That That's just ridiculous. Yeah. And on that terrain and that exposure, you know, I just, I thought about that when I was um, out West and just, um, you know, the heat, the heat gets to me more, you know, in the exposure. So I thought about the, the JMT FKT out there. And I was like, well, that makes me sick to my stomach, but you know, some of my FKTs make other people sick to their stomachs. So it's all, again, all perspective. That's right. um, yeah. All right. Hey, Bethany, you know where we are right now? The end? Almost. Not quite Almost. the end. Hiking hacks. Hiking hacks. Okay. Hiking hacks. That's right. It's time for you to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. What do you have for us? Oh, nice. All right. Hiking hack number one, um, have a toilet kit. Um, so I like to have a Ziploc bag of toilet paper, Sani. Um, some people take like the trowel thing. I've never used the trowel because I just use my hand to dig the hole um, or a stick because I'm a farm kid. Like I don't need a, a shovel, <laughs> small shovel to do that. But I do like to have a really nice like toilet kit that I leave in a very like specific part of my pack so that it doesn't get like cross contaminated with other things. So um, it's important for me, again, with ulcerative colitis to have ways to stop pooping. So I take also like a modium AD um, out with me. Um, but also things to make me go to the bathroom because if my system's not happy, I'm not a happy hiker. So I also pack in some prunes, um, if things are going the other way. So that is, that's one hack. Um, you, you are complicated. You're, you're complicated. Yeah. Yes. I mean, mean, well, I mean, (laughs) you didn't just stop at the toilet kit, you, you, you you know, you stuff to make you stop stuff to make you go. I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of logistics involved here with you. There are. That's good. Yes. Because, yeah, I just, when I look at it, well, one, I don't know if we talk about pooping on trail enough, 
and I'm, I'm sure like you might have had a podcast dedicated to that. Just working with young kids, though, like that's one of their biggest reasons that they don't want to go out in the woods because they don't know how to go to the bathroom. So it's like, OK, let's let's talk about this a little bit. It's like this is going to um, be uncomfortable. And I've also like had to evac people from the field because they're refusing to poop and going on like day five of impacted bowel. So um, that's um, that's where I'm coming from. All these like thousands of field days out there. (laughs) But and and that's just like one of my biggest hacks. It's like if you don't have a happy gut, you're not going to be happy out there. So you got to have that. Um, I like to hack number two, just use a fleece as a pillow. So like take all the extra clothes you have, make that into your pillow. Um, it's keeping it warm. It's also keeping it accessible right by your head. Um, I like to um, sleep with as many like pieces of clothing as I can inside of my sleeping bag, not necessarily on me, but like drying it out, keeping it warm. Um, how many hacks do you want? <laughs> I was only asking for one. I'm just, ha- I'm happy we got three. Oh, I mean, that's awesome. Sorry, I'm no, I'm, you're, I'm done. You're there. good. You're good. All right. <laughs> yeah. So there you have no, it. I think, yeah. We are just about done here. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Roadrunner, Pink Lightning, Bethany. Yeah. I want to thank yep. her for joining us this week. Bethany, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? So the best way to follow me is Instagram. Uh, it is uh, Bethany climbs that's my instagram okay thank you very much remember to check out the pod on social media as well we are on facebook youtube instagram twitter and tiktok and if you have comments or clips you want to share you can send it to me at john at gmail.com off the beaten path now unfortunately we can't always be on the trail and when we're not we need to find a way to get our adventure fixed Bethany, I'm going to ask you to share some outdoor adventure media with our listeners to help them get by. This can be a book, a movie, or a documentary. We call this segment Off the Beaten Path. What do you have for us? Any recommendations? Oh, I do. So it's called Aftershock, and it's on Netflix. And it's about the Nepali earthquake of 2015. And my friend, uh, Sarah Safari, she survived the earthquake in Nepal. She was on Mount Everest at the time between base camp and camp one. So she's followed throughout the documentary and she does, she would be another amazing person to have on your podcast. She's actually out in California. Um, That's where she lives. Um, She's an Iranian American woman and she became the first Iranian to climb all seven summits. And she um, has a nonprofit that helps um, women around the world. So she's a bombshell of a person. Aftershock on Netflix. What was her name again? Sarah Safari. All right. Getting all kinds of uh, leads here. It's fantastic. Thank you. Yep. What have we not asked you? And before (laughs) we wrap things up, I've got just one more segment for you called, what have I not asked you that you're dying to tell us about? What do we miss tonight? Oh, geez. I don't know. 
I feel I talked about my shoes a lot and going to the bathroom and growing up on a farm. <laughs> so all the um, all the great points. Yeah, but really life boils down to a few things. Oh, I'm writing a book. I do want to just hit on that a little bit more. Not so much for the like, hey, I'm writing a book, look for it. Um, so and so, but uh, I am a writer and I think that's a big piece of me that I don't talk about as much as the mountain stuff, because I think the mountain stuff almost draws people in a little bit more of like, you did what and what in such and such a time. And then that kind of takes up the conversation. But I've been writing about my mountain adventures um, since I was about 26. And um, and now it's it's going to be in a book format. So I'm really excited about that. Does the book have a title or a working title at this point? It does. It does. It's called a wild dream. How how does a a particular podcaster get a, an advanced copy of a wild dream? Ooh, I'll have to ask my editor on okay. that. <laughs> it's the first book. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that will work, but um, I can try to give you information on that. Do you have a release date on it yet? Uh, around Christmas perfect timing i know well we kind of planned it that way <laughs> nice i like the way that worked out yeah okay well congratulations thank you all right we are finished thank you for coming on the podcast bethany we wish you the very best on your your the completion of your book and your future adventures we hope you'll come consider coming back at some point and sharing some more stories with us as we uh, close up today do you have any shout outs to friends and family Hello, everyone. I love you all. Um, I, of course, I, I don't want to miss anyone, though. So I'm just going to say I love you all. <laughs> You're amazing. That is the safe way to go. Very smart. Yeah. Very smart. You must be an yeah. academic. Yes. Yeah. Well, that caught me off guard a little bit. I would have had <laughs> um, my speech prepared for that. But if I were to give a shout out to anyone, it would be my mom and dad and just, um, you know, my family and getting the support I did as a kid. Um, medically and physically and being able to pursue my loves and passions. So I'll, I'll dedicate it to them. Okay. Well, thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if the mountains are aggressive with no fancy switchbacks or bluebird <laughs> skies. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. <laughs> Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.